Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. So this episode is a part two. So if you haven't listened to part one, which looks at the origins of the Combat Glider developed in Germany, go over there, get caught up on that one. We'll be right here waiting for you, okay? Now, let's get into today's story of what the UK did with the idea of the combat glider. A little like school kids, the UK and the US saw what was going on with airborne operations in Germany and basically started copying off their homework. On the 22nd of June, 1940, Prime Minister Winston Churchill directed the War Office to look into creating a corps of 5,000 parachute troops. While this was happening, the War Office decided that gliders would play a major role in transporting heavy equipment as well as the troops. The requirement was that the new glider would be able to carry eight troops and would be used both for training as well as actual assaults. Just like the design philosophy of the German DFS, it was thought that the glider should be capable of a long gliding approach for a stealthy attack where the defenders should not be able to hear the motors of the towing aircraft and the glider would just arrive silently. It also had to be simple in construction, as it would also be disposable. The rather ambitious goal was that the glider should be able to glide 100 miles when released from a high altitude, although this expectation was reduced to a goal of 80 miles if released from a height of 20,000 feet. The UK's first kick at making a combat glider was the General Aircraft GAL-48 Hotspur, starting a tradition that all British glider names would start with the letter H. It really does look like a copy of the German DFS-230, although I will admit that it's a little more sleek, and with its little round portholes, it has the fuselage shape of a mini Lockheed Constellation. Just like the 230, it would drop its wheels on takeoff, but unlike the German model, after landing, the top of the fuselage would be hinged over and the troops were to jump over the side like getting out of a boat. The idea that it was a flying landing craft was even extended to the name of the person operating it. The British initially called their glider pilots coxswains, you know, like the guy who steers a boat. The Hotspur had a wingspan of 62 feet and was 39 feet in length, and had fittings on both the nose and tail to allow multiple gliders to be towed together. 400 Hotspurs were ordered right away. Again, like the Germans, the British were flailing around trying to both figure out what this sort of warfare was going to look like at the very same time they were trying to design and build something to do it. You gotta feel sorry for the designers and engineers trying to accommodate them in this confusing time. And it must have been very frustrating as radical change requests kept coming down the pipe. Even as the initial order of Hotspurs was beginning to be delivered, the philosophy of the glider assault was already changing. At the same time, limitations with the Hotspur were being discovered. Firstly, the idea that the glider would release from a very high altitude a long way off and glide in for miles and miles to the landing zone was dumped. So, 
some of the graceful sailplane-like aerodynamic qualities could be gotten rid of. Also, there was a desire to have it carry more people and stuff in order to get a critical mass of force on the ground at the same place at the same time. The idea that a long line of hotspurs hitched together was going to arrive like a train was abandoned when somebody actually pondered doing this at night or with clouds around. The glider was going to be more like a short-range winged truck that had to fly, sort of, and be big and tough enough to carry more than 15 troops at a time, and also be able to carry the equipment that the glider troopers were going to need to survive on the modern battlefield. They would want vehicles, and guns, and yes, tanks. Obviously, the Hotspur was not going to cut it. So changes were made to the specifications of the Hotspur at the same time as requests were put out for bigger and more capable gliders. The Hotspur Mark II had its fuselage strengthened and wings were chopped by over 8 feet each, giving it a wingspan of 45 feet. The sailplane type wingtips were hacked square cut and ailerons moved from the end of the wings to more inboard position. The lid exit idea was scrapped and two side doors were added for the troops to get in and out and a braking parachute was installed to the rear. With the desire for the ability to carry more troops at once, there was an experiment of joining two hot spurs together with a joined common center wing section 12 feet in length and a joined tailplane. The two pilots would sit tandem style in the port or left fuselage. They built, tested, and flew one model, but the flight characteristics were not good, and so the project was abandoned. The Hotspur has to be seen as a kind of successful failure, for although they didn't turn out as imagined and were never used in combat, they were built in fairly large numbers with over 1,000 of their various marks being produced, and they ended up being very valuable as trainers, and all British glider pilots would train on it. Several were packed up and sent to Canada and the USA for evaluation by the Army and Navy, and there was even a plan before D-Day to use them for the transportation of vital cargo and equipment where they would be towed behind, wait for it, Spitfires. The idea was that a fighter squadron could more quickly redeploy itself by towing its own equipment in the gliders. Actually, it's not that crazy an idea. A Canadian fighter squadron, 401 squadron, was actually tasked to prepare for this. Some of their Supermarine Spitfire 9s were modified to pull the gliders with tow points attached to the tailwheel. And some of their pilots trained to fly the Hotspur, which must have felt mighty weird after flying and fighting in the spit. The plan actually worked, and the squadron found that it could move itself and its mechanics, armorers, and essential stores if it had to. The Spitfires actually acted well as glider tugs, although, because they had to fly slowly at high power settings, their engines were more prone to overheating. The plan never saw operational use, and unfortunately no digital images online exist. I'm not the only one who has looked. Vintage Wings of Canada 
has also scoured the internet because it would be pretty cool to see a picture of a glider being towed by a Spitfire. But the Hotspur was not going to be the main combat glider for the UK. A new specification was published by the Air Ministry for a glider able to handle about 30 troops. The Airspeed Limited Company had been formed by the aeronautical engineer and later novelist Neville Shute Norway and designer Hessel Tiltman, although by this time they were a subsidiary of de Havilland. Their main product during the war was the AS-10 Oxford twin-engine trainer, which was a light transport aircraft in the vein of the Avro Anson. Tiltman and a team from de Havilland came up with the initial design of the AS-51, which was still not easy, as there were still some strange assumptions that had to be tried out first. One was that the glider, which was going to get the name Horsa, was going to be a transport for paratroopers to jump out of rather than land in. This led to the addition of large side doors to jump out of. This concept was dropped. One requirement stayed, and that was that as much as possible of the glider had to be made out of wood, as metal in wartime UK was very scarce. In February 1941, an order for 400 of the gliders was placed. There was a plan to perhaps have horses built in India. However, it was found that the tropical wood that they would have had on hand wouldn't be suitable. They looked then into exporting the wood from UK to India, but that was just not practical. So many wacky ideas were on the table. The AS-52 was a bomber version of the Horsa that would be towed behind another bomber and could carry a 4,000-pound bomb load in a bomb bay. This was suggested when there was a serious shortage of heavy bombers and perhaps bomber gliders would be the answer. This idea was shelved. If you had ever thought of British combat gliders before, and you'd be excused if you never had, this would be the one that you'd be thinking of. It was in the movies A Bridge Too Far and The Longest Day. If you have heard about the raid on Pegasus Bridge, yep, that was the Horsa. It was a big glider, although not German Gotha-style big. It had a wingspan of 88 feet and a length of 65 feet, and later versions could have an all-up weight of 15,750 pounds. It was a high-wing monoplane configuration with wooden wings and a fuselage that was built in three sections, which were bolted together. The front section was the cockpit and the main freight loading door. In the middle section was the area for the troops or freight, and the rear section supported the tail unit. The wings had massive flaps, which allowed for wildly steep, high rate of descent landings. This is exactly what you needed to get into tiny landing zones. The landing gear had pneumatic brakes when the fixed landing gear was kept. But in actual operations, the Horsa would drop its main gear and keep the castering nose wheel and land on skids. The tail unit could be broken off and ramps dropped on landing to quickly unload the troops or equipment. In the beginning, it was thought that a ring of cortex explosive would be used to blow off the rear fuselage. 
But with all the firing and shooting expected to be going on, this was seen as a hazardous recipe for a premature detonation. So a slower, but safer system of cutting off the tail was devised with the use of quick-release bolts and wire cutters. The cockpit had dual controls for both pilots, and either telephone cables or radios to talk with the tow aircraft. In the cargo area sat the troops on benches, 15 aside, facing inwards. It could also carry a jeep or a six-pounder anti-tank gun. As they were mainly built of wood, it seems pretty fitting that horses were built by subcontractors that had formerly been making furniture before the war. Due to this, they were not assembled and flown out in the regular manner that most aircraft were, because factories building tables and chairs and sofas don't usually have airfields. So the horses were crated up and shipped to RAF maintenance units, or MUs, who did the assembly themselves. Because of this process, and the concept for the British that these aircraft were disposable, one-use devices that didn't need to be registered and taken on strength formally and all that, no one is sure how many horses were built. Although the number has to be somewhere between four and 5,000 that had been completed by the time production ended. So, the horses could carry a good number of troops, or a light gun, or a jeep. What it could not carry, and what the British airborne troops would really like to have on the battlefield to increase their survivability, was tanks. For this, the British developed the GAL-49 Hamilcar. The contract was given to General Aircraft Limited because, if you remember, they were the ones with the experience in developing the Hotspur. And they had already been tinkering around with ideas for a tank-carrying glider. Actually, I find the out-of-the-box thinking that was going into the initial ideas behind the Hamilcar to be fascinating, if not entirely practical. At the time, there was a severe shortage of pilots of all types, including glider pilots, so that was a problem. Also, in the German and British glider units, the pilot was not just a bus driver to get the troops to the action once he had gotten his glider to the ground. He was supposed to pick up a rifle and fight with the troops. Taking this to its natural extension for a tank-carrying glider, why not have the tank driver do the flying? I mean, he was already trained to drive a tank. How much harder could it be to teach him how to fly the glider also? And wouldn't it be great if they could modify the tank to have the glider's controls too, so he could fly the glider while sitting inside his tank, so that he could drive the tank off the glider as soon as they landed? The earliest design was for a low-wing glider with the tank's main body inside the glider's fuselage, but with the turret sticking out the top, so that the driver-slash-pilot could see to fly, and perhaps even shoot at targets on the way down. Wouldn't that be cool? Sure, why not? We're just spitballing here, right? Okay, don't laugh too hard. Remember that the idea that tanks could float and swim themselves ashore on D-Day sounds just as nuts, and it actually came to pass. Anyway, so although the idea of a flying tank hybrid thingy was wonderful, when the air ministry and the company designer sat down to hash it out, they decided that a more conventional design made more sense. 
they came up with a very big high wing glider with both the cockpit and the wing spar above the interior area to allow the biggest area for cargo, which allowed it to be able to carry either a Tetrarch or M22 Locust light tank or a 17 pounder gun or two universal Bren gun carriers, which was the light British tracked APC or armored personnel carrier. The cockpit was 15 feet in the air, so an internal ladder was installed for the pilots to get up and down, and an intercom system was provided so that the pilots could talk to the personnel below them in the cargo area. The Hamilcar was big, almost the same size as a Lancaster bomber. It had a wingspan of 102 feet and a length of 69 feet. But, unlike the early Hotspur, there was no desire for the thing to be able to glide long distances. It was to be towed to almost over the landing zone and then released. Massive wing flaps, which were driven by compressed air from a bottle, then helped the Hamilcar descend steeply, but stop very quickly at a precise location. Although, like many gliders, the idea was to have it land on skids. With the Hamilcar, it was eventually decided to leave the fixed landing gear, which were equipped with oleo pneumatic shock absorbers, as the pilots had found that they preferred the extra control of a wheeled landing where they would have the ability to avoid other gliders and other obstacles in the landing area. In order to get into the fight right away, the engines of the vehicle in the cargo area were to be started before landing. So there were ducts built into the fuselage to expel the poisonous fumes. The tank crews rode in their vehicles for the whole flight, and once the glider stopped rolling, they would pull a lanyard that would release the anchors holding it to the glider's floor. At the same time, the pilots would deflate the pneumatic landing gear shock absorbers, which would bring the nose down to the ground level. Then the driver would start to drive forward, and a line attached from the back of the tank via pulleys to the glider's nose would cause the door to swing sideways open and allow the tank to drive out. If the fancy pulley door operating system didn't work, then the tank driver was supposed to drive right through the nose. Too bad, so sad. It was never meant to be more than a one-way flight for the Hamilcar anyway. In all, they built about 300 of them. And that is all she wrote on British gliders. Next time we'll examine what the USA did and cover the operational history of Allied glider operations. <laughs>